Hi there, it's me, Ted Asaragato, and you're listening to the Planet LP Podcast. This is episode 94, and it's a new series that we're doing on the pod called A Great Year in Music? Notice the question mark there? We're not making emphatic statements about this year or that year, but kind of leaving it all open to see if the year we spotlight was indeed great. This year, it's 1995. And with me is Popdose writer Keith Creighton. Hi there, Keith, and welcome back to the pod. Hey, it's good to be back. Oh my God, here we go again. I can't believe we're already now two pods into 2024. I know, but we're going to talk about 1995 in this podcast. Let's get into the top 10. All right, Keith, what's your number 10? Okay, we're going to actually begin this era by starting about the end of an era. And this might be a little controversial, but we're going to talk about Prince. And my number 10 is The Gold Experience, which actually was not released as a Prince record. It was released as an untitled symbol from the artist formerly known as Prince. And it's one of those things where I consider this the last great Prince album. He put out plenty of good ones, but in the next 21 years before his unfortunate death in 2016, But the gold experience for me was the last one where you're like, oh my God, one of the greatest voices in the history of music has dropped another just absolutely perfect album. And this one very much is about the awakening of the internet, you know, because Mm -hmm. it has all these interstitials that you're kind of, you know, not really in the internet, but almost in a CD-ROM type experience. And so there was actually a CD-ROM that kind of was a companion piece to this that had a very crude but ahead of its time gaming experience and so but man between pussy control the most beautiful girl in the world gold there were just so many bangers around this album and i still to this day use this album to showcase my stereo system Hmm. i really want to show off what it can do because sonically it's just perfect So your number 10 is my number five. And I agree with you that the gold experience was probably his last good album from start to finish. And even with the kind of weird interludes with the NPG operator coming in, like you said, it was sort of like an internet experience. It was sort of this space that existed that he had created in a way to guide you through this process. But I loved Endorphin Machine, man. Oh, <laughs> I just yeah. love that song. And one, one of the things I love about it is that scream he does at the end. I was just like, this is insane how he does it. I think it's even better than the one he does on Let's Go Crazy. So when, when Prince died, I was working for iHeartMedia and I was doing news, traffic, weather, and sports. And I was on this radio station and, and we were talking about Prince because he had just passed away. It was a talk station. And I played the scream part at the end. The host said, wow, I don't think I've ever heard that. How did he do that at the end? He was at a certain note and then he took it a little bit higher right at the end. I said, I don't know. He took a deep breath. It's just such a really good album. Even that song Dolphin, which is yeah. kind of a weird one lyrically. I really like that song. Yeah. Um, Reincarnation, yeah, talking about death. You know, if I yeah. came back as a dolphin. And Dolphin mm-hmm. actually segues to, I hope they do an expanded version of this someday, like they're doing with a lot of the rest of his catalog, because Dolphin is the connecting track to The Undertaker, which to me is also one of the greatest Prince records ever released. And it was only released in Japan. Mm. It's really bluesy, very guttural. There's a Rolling Stones cover on it. And so it was basically just Prince 
And, you know, his, I think he was down to three musicians at that point. Well, the three of them were a trio, just rocking out at Paisley Park. And it's the soundtrack to a really horrible movie that was released direct to video where Vanessa Marcel from General Hospital is basically tripping balls on an overdose. She stumbles into Paisley Park to use the phone and she stumbles then back and discovers the band rehearsing. Yeah. And so you're in the middle of the ride, which was later released in a different format on his crystal ball CD. But, you know, here he's in this long bluesy number called the ride, which has some of his best guitar pyrotechnics on it. And in the middle of this amazing song, Vanessa Marcel throws up and you have to hear her just completely emptying <laughs> all the pills Great. out of herself. And it's just <laughs> disgusting and there's slurps. And so I, I took the VHS and I was able to burn that to a CDR and listen to that for years. And that CDR, based on a second generation VHS, is still sonically one of the best things in my collection. Okay. So good. So I hope someday <laughs> they put it out properly because Prince fans everywhere need to hear this just ridiculously amazing companion piece to the gold experience. So my number 10 is Tricky, Max and Quay. It was an interesting record because I didn't know anything about Tricky. In fact, I didn't even know the record existed until my brother Steve gave it to me. He gave me the CD. He says, hey, uh, I thought maybe you'd like this. It's kind of Ted music. Like, what? He goes, yeah, I think this is when I when I listened to it, I thought, oh, you, Ted would like this. So he gave me the CD and I said, well, why did you buy this anyway? He said, because it came with this cool T-shirt. And it, it's just a tricky t-shirt. He says, I like the t-shirt. So I didn't know tricky from Adams off ox. I would, but I was intrigued by the darkness of it all. And it's not all tricky on this record. He has, he trades vocals with his vocalist, Martina Topley bird. And she's got like this great voice. It's very scratchy, kind of like his, but you know, female version of tricky, not quite. I mean, cause he doesn't really sing anymore. It's mostly talks and raps and things like that. But I think the two work very well on this record. And I was looking on Apple Music, and I like the the capsule review they put on it. They said, if unease were an art form, then Max and Quay would be its Sistine Chapel. Oh, that's genius. <laughs> I wish I could have written that. But yes, number 10, tricky. Yeah. Max and, and Quay. the thing is, Black Steel has some of the best lyrics I've ever heard in a song. You know, I got a pre- letter from the president the other day, opened it, yeah. read it, said we were suckers. They want me for their army, whatever. Picture me giving a damn. I said never. Like, yeah. that's a great protest song. And I, I know, just love it. Is. Yeah. And if you play Black Steel, compared to the original, the Public Enemy version, it's they're two different songs. The tricky version has got this great guitar, just like ripping it. Like I said, two different songs. But yes, Black Steel is, is wonderful. So let's go to your number nine. Okay. My next one. And this is also talking about transitions. Post by Bjork. Tricky is on this one. Mm-hmm. And I put this on this morning, you know, because it's been in my top 10. Just for the record, I did my top 10 records of all time about 10 years ago. I'm sorry, my top 10 records of 1995, 10 years ago. And my mm-hmm. 10 still holds up. We submitted that to a blog called Life on This Planet by Brett Helm, who's in the band Audra. I brought out Pios today, and man, it sounds almost even better today than it did back in the day. 
And it really kind of set up, especially with what Madonna was going to do 10 years later, maybe like, yeah, five years later, five, you know, when yeah. she worked with Mirwais or I think mm-hmm. Mirway on her, her music album, that kind of sonic experience really had seeded with Post. And she meant this to be kind of the sequel to Debut which was her transition from the sugar cubes. And that one is a very cohesive, but more laid back and romantic record. Mm-hmm. Her post is very angry, you know, and it yep. mixes everything from big band swing, industrial trip hop, avant-garde pop. Everything is commingled. And what she said was deliberately schizophrenic to showcase all of her sides. And so post is a, not only meant to be after, cause she had just moved to London given, you know, after all her years, her formative years in Iceland. And so Post was really about her experiencing an entirely new world through London and all of its culture. Magnificent album. Your number nine is my number four. I will only add about the long shadow of Massive Attack because Tricky was in Massive Attack and he had left in 95 to go his own way as it were. Mm. And he was in a relationship with Bjork at the time. And that's why you hear the very similar sounds on there, especially the lead track and single that came off that album, Army of Me. It was in that movie Tank Girl. Do you remember Tank Girl? Yeah, that's a great soundtrack, by the way. (laughs) It is. Yeah, but this record, I think, is just more aggressive than the debut uh, called Debut. Yeah. And I think it's just very much a reflection of a part of 1995 was underground, was slowly becoming overground, but you know, in terms of like trip hop, industrial and so forth. But to me, even though all of these styles are mixed in, Bjork's presence is always on top. And I think that that's a testament to her maintaining her, her voice, not just her literal voice, but just her artistic voice throughout this entire album so yes yeah. and the other thing that really has to be noted is how video played so much a part of this album she did the the videos with michelle gondry from eternal sunshine and the spotless mind and spike jones and man she really is right up there with michael jackson in terms of video vanguards which is borrowing a term from mtv and their kind of like their historical award they give out at the vmas her videos are basically mini movie masterpieces yeah bjork can't say enough good things about her number nine for me is pj harvey to bring you my love now Polly jean harvey her music not really accessible at times it can be atonal angry there's no melody sometimes it's just screaming but this is the first real solo project and i think it's pretty great it had some Really great songs like Come On Billy and the single that came, that really got me hooked, which is Down By The Water. Really dark stuff. As I said, very atonal at times, but really the work of an artist, let's put it this way. You can tell she's in her own lane. She's really carved it out and this is where she's going with it. Even though she gets compared to Captain Beefheart. If you don't know who Captain Beefheart is, you'll just think, what? <laughs> I yeah. like PJ Harvey, but that's that's fine. If you wanted to do sort of a, a bit of a rabbit hole dive, check out Captain Beefheart and you can hear the comparisons at, at times. But wow, this is a really kind of an original voice and she's not always going for like the hits or the standard way of composing a song with, you know, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, or we're in the ride out. So yeah, Polly Jean Harvey or PJ Harvey to bring you my love. That's my number nine. Now, I'm going to have to check that one out again because I have the album. I just never listened to it. In fact, I just can't stand it. But it's one of those things where. (laughs) 
That was 25 years ago. So now with my modern sensibility, I'm going to go back because Ted, you introduced me and reintroduced me to a lot of amazing things. So I'm going to go back and check that one out again to see, okay, I wonder what 2024 Keith would think of it. And if he agrees with 1995 Keith, I can't stand that record. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm going to need my next one because Kristen Hirsch is also one of those acquired tastes, mm-hmm. you know, so she's for throwing muses and also has a prolific solo career. And even within the brand throwing muses, you never know what you're going to get in the eighties. When Tanya Donnelly, her stepsister was in the band, they had some really big, bright, new wavy kind of jangle hits that were very sunshiny. And then university was their fifth album. And the first with Tanya Donnelly, leaving it, leaving Kristen Hirsch as a trio And to me, this is my favorite album from this band. And it really is the epitome of 90s guitar rock. Bright Yellow Gun was the big hit off of this. But every single track just has all that great oversaturated color in the guitar parts that really make it a quintessential album from this era. And I wanted to really kind of highlight, you know, the second song on the track on the album is called Start. Mm-hmm. And it is one of the most intense songs about sex I've ever heard. Hmm. And the lyric goes, I start at his knees and I'll end in his dreams. I'm so glad you could come. Now breathe underwater. I could see her just shoving the head down between her legs and saying, okay, I got you off. You get me off. <laughs> and oh my God, it's just intense, you know, in terms of her owning herself and self agency and just knowing what she wants and getting it. And, but, you know, all this, the songs go across the map lyrically and just she's such an amazing lyricist. The guitar parts are amazing. The drum parts are amazing as a trio. They really nailed it. And they're still putting out music to this day. So I highly recommend University by Throwing I, Muses. I think you're right about Throwing Muses is that they're not a band that's easily just accessible. Although, they're, like you said, there are some very accessible songs. I'm thinking of like Not Too Soon. That the one that Tanya Donnelly sings of the 1991 release, which was called The Real Ramona. So that's that's a band that for me, it's hit and miss. I mean, I'll like listen to something like from them and I'm like, yeah, I'm not feeling it. And then I'll hear something else and I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling it. <laughs> so it's uh I'll have to check this one out uh, in more depth because you it, it ended up on your your top 10 from 1995. My number eight is actually a soundtrack. It is the Batman Forever soundtrack. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> soundtrack how does that count well i'll tell you how it counts is because it's got two really great songs that became hits one is u2's hold me thrill me kiss me kill me i hope i got that right yeah and then the other one is kiss from a rose from seal so that one most people know because it's it was played mm-hmm. to death but i had kind of done a deep dive into this soundtrack because i thought when i looked at the track listing and i, I picked up the cd maybe about a year ago, maybe two years mm-hmm. ago, actually, because I wanted that, that U2 song on CD because I liked the song and I wanted the CD version. So I started looking at the track list and I'm like, huh, you know what this is? This is a soundtrack marketed to Gen X. I mean, it's yeah. totally a Gen X album. It's not all the hits. Yes, you've got some powerhouse songs on there, but it's like an album of deep cuts. So I wrote like a blog post on it and all I said at one point, I just pulled out a paragraph 
before we started recording. And I said, the beauty of, of a soundtrack album like this is, except for Kiss from a Rose, all songs feel like deep cuts. Too often, soundtracks of this type are front-loaded with a couple of strong singles, and the rest is more generic filler. Batman Forever does sidestep that particular trap by assembling a collection of songs that could have easily been included in the movie in some form or fashion. But the fact that they weren't doesn't really take away from this 90s artifact. Also, it should be noted as a successful example of a time when marketing to Gen X wasn't as easy as the previous generation. And I talk a little bit about how easier mm-hmm. it was to market to boomers than it was Gen yeah. X. Because, you know, Gen X is notoriously cynical and hard to please. So. Yeah. And does that have the Smashing Pumpkins? The end is the beginning of the is the end? Yes. Yes. Let yeah. me, I will double check for you. Because that was produced by Nellie Hooper, who also then was heavily involved in the first two Bjork albums. And so it all kind of segues in. And we should maybe do an entire podcast on the best soundtracks for the 1990s. Because man, the 1990s was the king of the soundtracks in terms of, you know, you got singles and Pulp Fiction and even obscure stuff like Orange County. Oh my God, so many good soundtracks. Okay, I think I I jumped the gun on that. It does not have the Smashing Pumpkins song. So that must have been the next out. The next, the next, cut that whole thing. No, no, I'll I'll go okay. with my mistakes. I'll own it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, a schoolboy mistake, as they call it. And the internet corrected me. So thank you, okay. internet. See? Because so, this whole theme is about internet and how internet loves us and hates us at the same time. And you got to <laughs> hand it to Batman because Batman Forever, shitty, shitty movie, great, yeah. great soundtrack. It is a shitty movie. And it is a great soundtrack. So let's go with your uh, number eight. My next one is Heartworm. By Whipping Boy. Now, have you ever heard of this? Not until you told me about them in a text or an email. Some way we were communicating with each other. I don't know who Whipping Boy is. And I did check out both your recommendations on that thread that we had. But yes, continue. Yeah. So Whipping Boy is a band from Ireland that I discovered on one of those 99 cent discs, just trying to get record store independent owners to buy, you know, stock this record because this song is going to be huge. And it's one of those things where it is a triumphant decade defining masterpiece that then after the band released a follow-up, the band was gone forever. And I think it was one of the major newspapers in Ireland did a poll all these years later saying, what is the best Irish rock album ever? And Heartworm was voted the best Irish album of all time above U2. And so it's interesting because, you know, in the expanded reissue that came out a couple of years ago of this album, they talk about Whipping Boy was one of the last bands to be pulled up by the major labels after they had scoured every nook and cranny of Northern Ireland and Ireland looking for the next U2. And so mm-hmm. Columbia kind of found this band that had put out a kind of scrappy debut album called Submarine. Creatively was just a night and day from where they were, what they did with their debut album, Submarine. It is just one of the most gorgeous, dark and haunting records of all time. So you've got some of the best, you know, musicianship in terms of arrangements and production that you've ever heard. And Fergal McGee, the singer, has a gorgeous voice. But it's one of those things where it lures you in with the sound. And the more you kind of get attached to the narrator, you realize, wait a minute, you know, usually the singer is the hero and you're kind of like with Taylor Swift, you're kind of on her side and she's talking about breakups. Mm -hmm. You realize the singer here 
is the anti-hero. And he's not everything he's kind of claimed to be. And in fact, the more you get into the album, the more you realize, wow, this guy has got some issues. He's got anger issues. He's got mom issues. He's got issues with domestic violence. And it is a very confessional album, but also very, very dark. And it isn't until the very end where you get this dramatic payoff where in a spoken word thing, he reveals that he's been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and how this, then he goes back and thinking about all the songs that have come before it, talking about how this has affected his ability to maintain human relationships. And it kind of shows the seeds of why the band never worked. The band was coming apart at the seams. They only lasted briefly and they resisted even with the reissue of this album, which came out a couple years ago, any lucrative offers to reform and even tour, let alone put out new music. But oh my God, if you go into the Heartworm album all these years later, it totally holds up. The first song you get is called Twinkle. And you think it's this very romantic song because he's, he's singing, she's the air I breathe. But yet he's talking about a prostitute who's reminding him a lot of his mother. And <laughs> so, you know, that takes you into then When We Were Young, oh, which is man. a very buoyant, jangly guitar song where they're kind of reminiscing about memories of a youth gone past. And I was surprised to find out in the reissue that this is actually a reimagining of a Thin Lizzy song called Shades of a Blue Orphanage. And then it's just amazing as the band goes deeper and deeper and deeper into the story where you really get the dark side of the human experience, mm. but it's never before been so beautifully told. Oh my God. It takes you on an incredible journey in just 45 minutes. And thankfully the expanded version has a full disc of all the B sides and bonus tracks from the era. So it's well worth checking out whipping boy heartworm. Wow. That's quite a journey. It's dark. My number seven, you want to talk about dark, is Bruce Springsteen's The Ghost of Tom Joad. 1995 may have been the year where we were wondering whether to say internet or the internet. Yeah. But Bruce Springsteen wanted to make sure that stories about those who were left behind by internet and things that came after it were told. This is a powerful record that works its magic in a very, very quiet way. Springsteen doesn't sing in his usual yelly, constipated voice, but he's singing very hushed. In fact, this is the kind of record that you have to actually turn the volume up so you can actually hear what he's saying. Can't be a background record. Definitely an earbuds record or headphones. But if you're going to have it on speakers, make sure you have it up loud enough. The power in it is he's telling these stories of desperate people and if you ever read The Grapes of Wrath, you know uh, Tom Joad is in there. And so the ghost of Tom Joad references The Grapes of Wrath, which chronicles a family that comes from Oklahoma to California to find work during the Depression. But this is about 1995 and the kind of desperation of the characters around the United States, mostly in the Southwest, some coming up from Mexico. It's about a working class. You're going to get some rapes of wrath if you don't address the desperation and the poverty and the things that route them into very dark places. So I thought that Springsteen did a wonderful job on this album. So yes, The Ghost of Tom Joad, number seven. 
And listeners might like to know, just this week, Nugs.net, N-U-G-S.net, I think it is, maybe they're .com now, um, where they are kind of the chroniclers of the live Bruce Springsteen archive, just released a 1996 concert of Springsteen from Akron, Ohio, my old stomping grounds, from the Ghost of Tom Joad tour. Really, really worth checking out because I guess he does an entire intro section of a lot of <clears> songs <throat> from this era that are played live for the first time. Yeah, he researched that record. He researched the stories of the people and so forth. You know, he's a millionaire a million million times over at this point, right? He's got money up the wazoo. But he really wanted to tell these stories as authentically as he could. A lot went into this record in terms of its pre-production. And if you want to call it research, it was research, yes. So we're at uh, number six now. Okay. The Smashing Pumpkins. So here we go. So Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness was their big, triumphant double album triple album if you put it on vinyl back in the day this was the follow-up of siamese dream which was mainly the billy corgan and butch vig show where billy did most of the tracks jimmy chamberlain of course did all the drums produced by butch vig and they wanted to go in a different direction for the follow-up and so here they got flood and alan Mulder, you know who did a lot of work with like youtube back in the day what really makes this like one of the best Smashing Pumpkins records is the producers really wanted James Eha and Darcy, the bassist, to have mm-hmm. more of a say in the sound. Because I think what's lacking in Smashing Pumpkins today, even though three of the original members are back, is they still don't have the feminine energy that they need that was a part of the original band. By giving them more time to shine and flourish and influence the arrangements and the song selection and all that, because you know they recorded so many songs for this record that when the expanded version came out, they were able to add 64 tracks to the 28 tracks that made this. And that's not even accounting all the tracks that made the aeroplane flies high, which was a box set of just the B-sides from the (laughs) singles of this era that then also got like, I think, a hundred track expanded editions. Really about a prolific band, man. Yeah. (laughs) They were just knocking it out. It's one album era. And you figure with all the associated releases, yeah, they got a good 10 CDs worth of really, really good songs and recordings from this era. But Corrigan describes Melancholy as expansive versus expensive, Hmm. where Siamese Dream went way over budget. They said on some tracks, there was like 70 or 80 guitar parts. You can't even hear that after a while. Yeah, to get that kind of sound. But this was also then the end. This was the end of the original lineup because Tragedy Strikes on the Melancholy Tour, where Jonathan Melvoin who was you know, a great influence on a lot of Prince records because his sister, Wendy Melvoin, played for the revolution. He overdosed and died on this tour. He was the touring um, keyboardist on that, that particular tour. And then that got Jimmy Chamberlain kicked out of the band. And then Darcy would leave for Machina 1 and 2 that followed that with got Chamberlain back in the fold. So this is really the end of an era. Smashing Pumpkins at their peak. And I figure that the Smashing Pumpkins, like Radiohead, that we're going to talk about soon, are one of those few albums that had a 10 amazing year run, just like the Beatles. You know, look at the first Beatles record to the last. Smashing Pumpkins were the same way. Really, in 10 years, their sound transformed so dramatically. And every single song on Melancholy really holds up to this day, from the trippier, dancier stuff to the really, really aggressive metal onslaught. That is my number two album. I thought that this was a capstone of a trilogy of albums that established the Pumpkins as 
a powerhouse alternative rock band. I didn't know the backstory about Siamese Dream and that they ran over budget and the 79 guitar tracks and all that. That's a lot of indulgence there. But to me, this album had a lot of crossover appeal. It's Tonight Tonight and 1979, I think crossed over into Hot AC. But for me, the Pumpkins are a stellar band when they just rock out with songs like Jelly Belly, which is my favorite off this record. And like I said, just a wonderful capstone from Gish in 1991 to Siamese Dream in 1993 to Melancholy in the Infinite Sadness in 1995. I think that those three albums, if you're going to say, how shall I be introduced to the Pumpkins? Start with the first three albums, okay? Because that's where it lays the foundation of why this band, to me, was one of the best powerhouse alternative rock bands of the early 90s, early to mid 90s. So yes, number two for me, but for number six, for you. We're at number six now for me, and it is Joan Osborne's Relish. Ooh, that's an interesting one. I remember hearing Joan Osborne's St. Teresa in the country of Canada. My wife, Julie, remembers hearing one of us on WXPN, which is the college station at the University of Pennsylvania. That's where I was doing my graduate work at the time. I have no memory of hearing one of us on WXPN before we went up to Canada that summer, but we did get the CD and the CD went into high rotation on our player back then. It's clear this album has some legs in terms of influence. So I looked at the wiki on this and it had songs featured on shows like Joan of Arcadia, which is a very good show. Uh, they, They featured one of us, the Sopranos and the Good Wife had the last track called Lumina. And you remember the eighties band called the Hooters. They had some hits like, and we dance day by day. Well, one of us was written by Eric Bazilian and Rob Hyman from the Hooters and Rick Chertoff, who was also not necessarily in, in the Hooters, but he produced like Cindy Lauper records and so forth in the 80s. What's the connection? They all went to the University of Pennsylvania. So I thought, oh, that's why WXPN played yeah. this album so much because they're alumni. But um, absolutely love it. And there's a cover on there, a Bob Dylan cover of The Man in the Long Black Coat, which was from the album Oh Mercy that came out in 1989 and was a great Bob Dylan album. I know Dylan's kind of like one of those artists that you either love or you hate. You love it or hate it, yeah. You love or hate it, but uh, I've always loved Dylan and uh, I love that record, uh, Oh Mercy. And so when I saw that that Joan Osborne had done her cover, I thought, wow, she did a really good job on that. So yeah, that's my number six is Joan Osborne's Relish. Nice. Now we're going to talk about another band that had a really, really good decade, and that is Radiohead. The Bands came out, and this is still my favorite Radiohead album of all time. And so you figure the trajectory they were on from Pablo Honey through Kid A and how dramatically their sound expanded and changed. It's just amazing that the band went through that in such a short period of time. But Mm -hmm. man, The Bends is a great, great guitar record. And, you know, I love where he's singing in the title track, I'm waiting for something to happen. It's almost like kind of like culture. The culture was just waiting to explode. And especially in the UK, this is where all the Brit pop and really just took over everything, you know, with Oasis and Pulp and all the stuff that and Blur that was really kind of happening. And there's something also about the title track late in there where the guitar solo kicks in to me is one of the best moments of all of music of all time is that big guitar break at the end of the bends. But man, they just put out really beautiful songs like fake plastic trees and street spirit fade out that both had 
gorgeous videos attached to them as well as just a great sonic collage and so i think it was just the band firing on all cylinders nice nice well we've covered my number five and my number four because they showed up earlier in your list so you're up with number five all right so well that was my number five oh, no, number five you're up with number four sorry i'm sorry okay we are gonna do another band that I picked off. I first heard them on one of those 99 cent promo things. And then they opened for bare naked ladies at the park West. This is a band from New York called the bog men. And their album was life begins at 40 million. It was their debut and it was on Arista and they had kicked around the New York, New England scene for a couple of years before getting signed to Arista. They gave Jerry Harrison from the talking heads uh, to be the producer. It's one of those things where it's hard to describe this band. You know, their shows are like a transformative church revival without the sermon. All of the musicians are just playing a game and Harrison really captures all of their sonic fury where every instrument shines and crackles in the mix. And then you just hear some of the most inventive lyrics ever put down. And so I wanted to kind of showcase a couple of songs from here. The one that I first got into them was called Suddenly. And it begins with a skit, a comedic skit with a guy calling up his ex-girlfriend and the roommate is refusing to put the ex-girlfriend on. And it's all about suddenly is a breakup song, but it's as you're getting to know the narrator, you're going like, I kind of see why the girl dumped his ass. <laughs> and one of the great you know, lyrics from this is I cling to clothes she used to wear. And I tried them on and I styled my hair. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, okay, I think you were a little bit too into her. But yeah, as the song bit. kind of reaches its crescendo, he kind of learns, okay, now is the time for me to move on. And it just has the most epic, glorious build, payoff, and crescendo. And yet they keep matching that kind of style throughout the rest of this album. Raga you know, which follows a couple tracks later, is just so, so exciting. He has lyrics like, see the rain dancing on the snow. It writes the names of all the people going to the graves, walking one by one into the sun. And wow. so, but around the three minute mark in this song, it just explodes into a complete hootenanny jam session. And over the course of that last minute of just a four minute song, the jam session gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then just hits this earth shattering crescendo which comes to a triumphant end and you're just like oh my god how does music get to be this good then there's another song called dr jerome love tub doctor which is a therapy session fully going off the rails it ends with englewood which is a rumination on death and loss and i kind of think this is the last song that i want to play before i die Wow. You know, I would put that on right with Thank You for the Music by ABBA. And here's where the story ends by the Sundays. Here are some of the lyrics. I just finished putting my seventh drink away. A week now since her death and a drink for every day. And soon it will be 50 and I won't be worrying about ulcers. He's drinking himself to death. But then yeah. as the, the song continues, it's all about listening to his own heartbeat and finding his own way out of this life. And it is just absolutely beautiful each of the songs on this album are just exquisite life begins at 40 million one of the best albums of all time okay my number three is amy mann's i'm with stupid i loved till tuesday's records mostly yeah. the the second one welcome home and then yeah. the last one everything's different now i i do love a lot of what amy mann has done as a solo artist not everything but 
a lot of her records are really quite good. And in fact, many of them are quite great. I'm with stupid is one of them. I think that it's a really solid solo album. This is the second one that she did as a solo artist. It sounds less like a till Tuesday record and more like a solo record. Uh, lots of great alt pop songs are on here, but the biggest bang for the buck is the single. That's just what you are, which has squeezes Glenn Tilburg on there on co-vocals Juliana Hatfield shows up for a couple of songs. She lends backing vocals to on two tracks. But to me, I think for most people for who remember the show Melrose Place will remember the Amy Mann song, That's Just What You Are, was played on the closing credits. It was the video they played over the closing credits. Did not so know that. That was another way to cross promote, right? Because radio may not have been playing this song, but hey, you got tacked onto the end credits for Melrose Place for five, six weeks. That's five or six weeks that you're exposing your music to people who are in your demographic. People that watch Melrose Place may also like the Amy Mann. Check out the song. Yes. And check out I'm With Stupid. My number three, Amy Mann, I'm With Stupid. I'm sticking with it. Okay. My number two was also on your list, so I'm going to not even mention it because we've already done that one. So uh, we're on with your number three. Okay, now we're going to talk about the Foo Fighters. But let's think back because, you know, they've been for now 25 years, one of the biggest bands in all of rock. They could sell out stadiums anywhere they drop the needle on the map. Think about where they were in 1995. I had first heard that this project was happening through a little blurb in Rolling Stone magazine. When an iconic singer dies from a big band, there's a fork in the road. There's bands like NXS and Queen that kind of where the surviving members live in the shadow of their departed singer, and it's hard to move on. But then you look at Van Halen and ACDC, they were able to find a new singer and carry on. I would love to figure out, maybe listeners could write in with theirs, where a member that was not the lead singer then creates another band that becomes as big, if not bigger, than the original band. And that is the Mm -hmm. story of Foo Fighters. I was really lucky back in the day. So they announced before the record came out that Foo Fighters were going to be opening up for Mike Watt, you know, of the Minutemen on tour and that Hovercraft was opening for them. And so I was begging anyone at my agency to go with me to the show. And a girl who didn't even like me as a human being said, I'll go with you. And so we went, I think it was like a five or $10 show. Eddie Vedder's wife was in Hovercraft. And so Eddie Vedder came out at this club show. Remember, this is 1995, right? The right. Pearl Jam still. And Eddie Vedder and his wife do this little short avant-garde hovercraft set. And something, ugh, that was kind of weird, but it was nice to see Eddie in a club setting. So I'm thinking Foo Fighters are going to be this avant-garde thing too. Well, then the Foo Fighters come out. And just blow the freaking roof off the place, you know, because you figure none of us had heard any of the songs. The whole place just starts moshing. The songs were easy to grasp. And there was stuff that winds up making the album as well as B-sides like Winnebago that just completely kick ass. And so then the Foo Fighters stayed on stage with Eddie Vedder coming back out. And then they were the house band from Mike Watt for the headline set. And that album from that Metro show I was at has now been released formally on CD. So you can actually hear that whole set with Mike Watt and the Foo Fighters and Eddie Vedder. But, oh my God, the debut album then came out that summer and it just completely crushes. Now, Dave Grohl at this time had recorded more than one album worth of material. And when you watch their documentary, he alludes to a lot of these other tracks Some of the other tracks came out as the Pocket Watch cassette released under the band name Late. 
And so I'm hoping that someday they do an expanded version of this that has all the pocket watch sessions, everything from the Foo Fighters self-titled record, plus all these other vault tracks that are clearly out there that they talked about. As a Foo Fighters record, it's right up there with the next one, the color and the shape in terms of the best ever for this band. It is just bang, bang, single after single after single, just absolutely perfect rock and roll. Yeah, I think the the headline is Dave Grohl as a lead singer. That's really what it is, because how many drummers of an iconic band go on to front their own bands, learn to play guitar, and then have an incredible career after this iconic band. That's that's kind of a unicorn thing. So you had said something about, hey, if you know of anything, send us an email. Actually, and this is my little plug here, yeah. if you go to our Planet LP website, there is a widget on there that is by SpeakPipe. You can record a 90-second message to us. Ooh. So it, Yes, and it comes right to a, well, it comes to a, a special email box. Special. And so uh, just go on uh, planetlp.com, just scroll down halfway, you'll see where you can record. You can record right in through your computer microphone. You don't need a special microphone or anything. You probably use your phone as well. Send us a voicemail at planetlp.com and answer Keith's question. Give it some thought before you fire off that voicemail. So while you're thinking about that, think about Keith's number two. What is that? I discovered this band on late night broadcast TV. There was a regional show called JBTV, which was Jerry Bryant television. And if you didn't have MTV, like I didn't have MTV in the 90s, you know, this is how we got our rock videos. And so he would have people like Radiohead and Material Issue and Nirvana kind of show up in studio. And he kind of looked like Jerry Garcia. And he was so enthusiastic. And so he played the single, the video for Common People. And I literally lost my shit. I could not believe that a song could be this absolutely spectacular. And if you ever heard Common People, it builds and it builds and it builds. It has a spoken word story. And then when Jarvis Cocker really sings, it's about UK, especially, is very much of a class society. We're more racially divided here in the United States, but over in UK and Europe, it's very much about class. And so it was about a real rich, you know, I hate to say it, you know, a rich bitch shows up and asks Jarvis Cocker's, you know, kind of more street person to say, hey, can you show me what it's like just for fun to be a common person? He says, okay, why not? He takes her on this journey to the supermarket and the laundromat, what it's like when you actually live paycheck to paycheck and you don't know where your next meal's coming from and you actually have common worries. And he calls her on it saying, don't try to be all boho and edgy. And you know, this is not a vacation experience. This is real life. And it really just became an anthem for the 1990s. Like, especially when they sang it at Glastonbury, it's just like in everyone in the crowd, 100,000 people are singing along to this. And you think that, okay, Pulp is a band that you would think emerged on the scene in the mid-90s, but this band has been kicking around since the late 70s. They were very much an avant-garde act throughout the 80s. And when you go back to listen to some of the early stuff, it's like, oh, really? But they kept getting better by the mid-90s when the, the album His and Hers, and then this one, Different Class, and then the next one, This Is Hardcore, came out. They really came into their own. But the, your then, number two is Different Class, right? Yeah, so different class, okay. you know, okay. by just, is my uh, you, yeah. you mentioned three in there, and I was just like, wait, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm calling you, but it is different class. This is the yeah. one. And that was the one that really hit in 1995, but this was peak pulp. Disco 2000 was another big single from this where it says, let's all meet up 
in the year 2000. Won't it be strange <laughs> when we're all fully grown? And now here we are close to a quarter century later. That song still sounds fresh. I Spy was a great, terrifying kind of line with what Whipping Boy was doing with the dark anti-hero narrator. And you figure since then, they broke up right around the year 2001. And Jarvis Cocker, he's had a radio show. He's put out albums of sea shanties. He did a Wes Anderson tie-in French spoken word album. He was in the Harry Potter band with a member of Radiohead. And he's lately got an album project called Jarv Is, J-A-R-V, then I-S, that has two albums out now that kind of sounds like pulp. And here they are in 2024 touring again. And so we'll see. Maybe we will get another pulp album someday. Plenty of pulp product out there. Yes. Uh, But don't spell it like I just spelled it on my notepad. Plup. Plup. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. So yes. Okay. Different class pulp. That's your number two. Just real quick, Keith, you did not have MTV in the nineties. Yeah, it's one of those things where I was kind of very much like Jarvis Cocker in Common People. I was just starting to make money, and you clearly oh, okay. was blowing my money on CDs. Gotcha. And, so cable, um, you didn't want a big cable bill. Yeah, not a big cable. And it was always a big deal because I kind of moved apartments once a year. And so just to gotcha. get the hookup and the contract and all that kind of stuff, it wasn't worth it. So I was really discovering music through magazines record stores, concerts, and peers. JBTV actually has a presence online, but man, if he ever opened up his archives, he could have an entire streaming service with all of the great in-store performance or in-studio performances he got over the years. And he's still alive and well and just kicking it out to this day. We are at our number ones. I'm going to let you go first, Keith, because my number one has a bit of a backstory. My list is really eight number ones and two number twos in terms of the best (laughs) album of the year. If that's even possible on a list, right? My number one album that year when I first released my list and in subsequent years, I've always still put Rancid and Out Came the Wolves as my number one. And it's just an utterly brilliant and joyful record. They were being courted by the major labels who kind of saw them as being the next kind of mainstream polished up K-Rock band like Nickelback or Sublime Mm -hmm. or Smash Mouth. So that's what And Out Came the Wolves alludes to. All the labels circling with their contracts. You know what contracts are. You lose the rights to your masters and you lose the rights to your sound and you get a lot of people from the label giving you notes about what your song is going to be. And I don't hear a single and all that. And they said, no, fuck that shit. And they put out this on their own label. There's 19 tracks on here and every single one is better than the one that came before it. You got Maxwell Murder, you know, which has just a blistering bass line in it. Roots Radical, Time Bomb, Olympia Washington, Junkie Man, Ruby Soho. Every single song is just exquisitely memorable. And the band to this day keeps putting out really good records. And then all the members are involved in their own solo projects. They get back together as Rancid every once in a while. I think Rancid is touring with Green Day again. And they're going to do a big stadium. The Savior's Tour. Yeah. Yeah, the Savior's Tour actually has Smashing Pumpkins too. The price for the, that concert is so outrageous right now. Oh, it's insane. I can't even like, imagine. No. I said, oh man, I can't justify that kind of money. This is Gen X Eras Tour. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So Interesting. Uh, side note about this record. It was recorded partially in Berkeley at the Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. Yeah, they're a local oh, band yeah. for you guys. Mm-hmm. Almost mm-hmm. all of their songs are singing about alleyways and dive bars in your area. So. And I also love the fact that their concerts are just complete love fests where you can go see a really raucous punk rock show 
and not get beat up or hurt because they have a really aggressive fan base. It's one of those. No, when, you know, someone falls down, you pick them back up. Mm-hmm. Everyone respects everybody. You can actually enjoy the pit without getting the shit beat out of you. And it's just a lot of fun, really good fan base and really, really good people. They're all family men now. They all have their kids. They're all dads. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're all they are in their 50s. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. so we get to my, my number one. And as I said, there's a bit of a story to this. So I'll just start by saying what the number one album is for me. It is by Belly and the album is King. It was their follow-up to Star. You might remember the song Feed the Tree from 1993. That was off of Star. That was Belly's debut album. King was the follow-up, recorded in 1995. And it was their last record until 2018 when they regrouped and created Dove, which is a pretty good record. But to me, this is definitely an underrated record, and I will defend it until I stop breathing earthly air on how good it is. I don't think there's a bad track on this album. I've listened to this consistently since its release. My understanding is that the recording process was kind of tough for the band. They got Glenn Johns. If you're a music nerd, you know that Glenn Johns was behind the boards on a number of iconic records by little bands you might not have heard of, like the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, and so forth. They got him to produce the record, which was recorded in Bahamas at Compass Point Studio. And from what I understand, Johns agreed to record the band, but only if they were fully rehearsed with all the songs before they got to the studio, because he was going to record them essentially live in the studio. That meant minimal overdubs, no extra instruments. It's just the band playing. They're locked in and they're playing and he's hit and record. I think it's a good idea because bands tend to have more energy when they play live together than when they record their parts individually and then they stitch them together in the mixing process. I like the end product of King. It seems like this record though really tore the band apart, including the touring. They toured with the Catherine Wheel and this whole thing kind of fell apart after that tour because people like the Catherine Wheel more than Belly. And so they didn't really talk much for for years until they got back together. Here's my story about this album. So let's flash back to when I was first starting college. I went to a community college in the area I live in called Diablo Valley College. I did a semester, summer class up in Oregon at uh, the Ashland Shakespeare Festival. They had a whole week where you could go up, you watch a bunch of plays, you write about the plays, you meet some of the actors, you get backstage tours, and it was done through the community college. So I went up with a bunch of students and I met a guy there. His name was Matt Chasse. Matt loved the radio station KFOG. I happened to be a mobile DJ at the time working for a guy who worked at KFOG, used the KFOG name. He got permission to do it for his mobile DJ company. So I got a lot of KFOG swag and I had a KFOG t-shirt and that's how he's like, oh, you listen to KFOG? Are you working KFOG? I said, no, I don't. But I, I kind of told him the backstory of that. We became fast friends during this week. We spent all our time together. We hung out. We went to the plays, all this stuff. I saw him at DVC on and off after that, but then I transferred to San Francisco State and then I saw him at the opening night of Blue Velvet in Berkeley. I was on a bad date, but Matt to me was one of the funniest guys I had ever met. He could do characters. He could do imitations. I thought, my God, you could be an actor or a stand-up comedian. You were so funny. Fast forward to around 2016, I'm on Facebook and I'm looking through and Belly's post comes up about the video Super Connected. Super Connected was one of the songs off of King. I love the record, so I'm reading this thing. And they're talking about the fact that 
Matt worked on that video and they name checked him. And I'm all like, wait, is this the same guy? It was. I'm like, oh my God, Matt Chassay. So I wrote in the comments, I said, oh my God, Matt Chassay, long time no see. Remember when we hung out that week up in Ashland and then we were friends at TVC and blah, blah, blah. Now you've worked on a video. I find out you worked on a video from one of my favorite bands. This is awesome. So I click on his profile. I realize we're actually connected between a couple of mutual friends. So I friend him, nothing. So I wrote him like a little direct message. I said, hey, you know, I know maybe you're not checking Facebook or anything. It's not that big of a deal if we connect or anything, but I thought maybe we could kind of reminisce. Nothing. Okay, that's fine. I thought he's got his own thing going on. As it turns out, Matt is a pretty successful editor in Hollywood. He edited a James Bond film. Most recently, if you're a fan of True Detective, he just edited True Detective with Jodie Foster. So he's the editor on that. Like I said, I was like, my God, this guy is so funny. He could have been in front of the camera, but he ended up working on post-production. So here you've got this sort of six degrees of separation between me and Belly, one of my favorite bands. And then this guy, Matt, shows up and I'm all like, holy crap, you ended up working on Super Connected as kind of director production assistant sort of thing. I don't know. This seems kind of loose. But that's my that's my story about this particular video, this particular yeah. record, and how it kind of intersected with with and, Belly. Yeah, how yeah. Ted works into the Belly verse. Yeah, my only connection yeah. to this is I was doing public relations back in the day for Cafe mm-hmm. Babariba, which is a, a tapas restaurant in Chicago, and to promote this album, Belly did a live WXRT acoustic set live from Cafe Babariba that nice. I taped. And I have it on cassette still. And I'm like, oh, maybe I should get into the bootleg game because people need to hear this. So I don't know if it's actually in the bootleg sphere or if XRT should ever release it. You know, I kind of would hope that the tracks from that session would make a a bonus, you know, deluxe edition of this album because, oh my God, it is exquisite how they arrange the songs for this live, you know, in in the restaurant, you know, performance. So I hope that gets out there someday. Like I know that. at least one person, Keith, who would love to hear that. If I find I, it, I will I think hook you up. And yeah. I, think, I think you're talking to him right now. <laughs> okay. I'm going to look for it. I'll see if I can find <laughs> it for you. But yeah, maybe we got another belly record coming up soon. Who knows? Maybe. I think that they are working on new music. So I think we're going to see something perhaps this year. And they, they are a pretty solid band. And as we close out, Keith and I are going to recap from 10 to 1. And not go too long. Just do the title and do the artist, and then we'll close out. So, Keith, you go first. Ten, Prince, The Gold Experience. Nine, Bjork, Post. Eight, Throwing Muses, University. Seven, Whipping Boy, Heartworm. Six, Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy, and the Infinite Sadness. Five, Radiohead, The Benz. Four, The Bogmen, Life Begins at 40 Million. Three, Foo Fighters, Self-Titled. Two, Pulp, Different Class. And number one. Rancid and out came the wolves. Very nice. My number 10 is Trixie. Trixie. <laughs> My number 10 is Trixie. <laughs> Who's the honey owners? <laughs> <laughs> One more time. Okay. My number 10 is Tricky Max and Quay. Apparently a tricky name to say. Number nine, PJ Harvey to bring you my love. The number eight position is the Batman Forever soundtrack. Number seven, Bruce Springsteen, the ghost of Tom Joad. Joan Osborne comes in at number six with Relish. Number five, Prince, the gold experience. Bjork at number four with Post. Number three, Amy 
Man, I'm With Stupid. Number two, The Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And number one is King by Belly. What a list, what a year, and what a conversation. Thank you, Keith, for chatting about this year that was. And what a what a pivotal year, not only for the culture, but for us too. Always a pleasure talking to you. As we close out this episode, just wanted to let you know that there is bonus content, about 20 minutes of Keith and I talking about where we were in 1995 and the culture at large. Hope you check that out on all the usual podcasting apps. Also follow us on social media. We're on the usual places, Facebook, Instagram threads, and X. Thanks again for listening. We'll be talking to you very soon right here on the Planet LP Podcast.